So here we are on December 8th, which is unofficially going to be called 1.5 Eve, which this being the month of December puts it squarely in at least the fifth or sixth ranking for holiday of the month. Um, as you know, there's quite a few important holidays this month. So today I figured we were just going to go through the rulebook 1.5 changes, some notes of the general FAQ, and I don't really want to discuss a lot of like why changes were done because you know people are going to have their opinions on those back and forth but the thing is the bottom line comes down to these are all done for the general health of the game now there are some ones that will i will touch on further explanation as to why they were actually implemented because some of them are a little we can say petty but there's reasons for all of them so since you guys, if you're listening to this on the 8th, are actually not going to have any of the documents here, you can almost consider this a little minor spoiler, which I usually don't do. So consider that my uh, holiday gift to you guys, Christmas, Kwanzaa, Hanukkah, whatever you guys might celebrate. So what I'm going to do here is we have two versions of the rulebook that we're posting up. One is just the general rulebook, here's you know how it is. And then another one is one that actually has revision notes uh, scattered throughout, where basically all the highlights have been done in a nice cool neon pink to point out, you know, this is what changed. Along with that, we have the general FAQ 1.5, which goes and piecemeals notes all of these, such as like page six, this was changed for this reason. Usually it's saying no rules change if it's a clarification, or it'll actually list it as an errata if it's some actual rules change. In addition to that, we've updated the general FAQ section for this document, um, as well as the FAQs for all of the factions as well. But specifically, what we're going to be focusing on today is going to be the general FAQ and then these rulebook revisions. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to start by just going through each of the notes in the rulebook, reading each of the sections, and then at the very end, we're going to be talking about some of the general FAQ things that were added. I really don't know how long this is going to go. It might be fairly quick. It might be fairly long. So we'll see. Um, let's just begin pouring this thing over because we have a decent amount to cover. By the way, if you haven't checked out the Visions and the Flames articles, those are going to go much more in-depth toward the mid-range and major changes in 1.5 that than anything I'm going to talk about here. Because a lot of the talk today is going to be fairly technical and just going into some of the minor changes here. And I'm not going to dwell too much on the big revisions that happen, such as, you know, Panic being probably the single largest one that people are going to debate about endlessly for now and forever, I'm sure. So let's just get started and go through here. The first change we're going to happen in the rulebook is going to be actually under game rounds, which has a very minor clarification that we have two distinct steps that are being added to the activation phases. One, select one unit to activate, and two, unit performs action. This is mainly a uh, quality of life thing where we're separating this into two distinct bullet points where when you have your activation phase, you're going to one, resolve any starter turn effects, two, select one unit to activate, three, unit performs action, and then four, you have that final check before the actual end of the unit's activation and it switches to your opponent's turn. Now, all that really happened here was that we separated the phase into two additional bullet points because we had some players that were thinking that unit choosing and performing action was simultaneous with the unit activating, which is definitely not the case. Those are two separate distinct steps in resolving you know, a unit's activation and overall a player turn. So this is just one of those little wording quality of life changes just to make it very specific that those are separate steps. They don't 
trigger the same thing. You know, a unit choosing choosing unit to activate is a step, which is then followed by the unit choosing uh, its action and then performing said action. Minor, but that's the type of stuff we're going in. Uh, we're going to be looking at today. So, yeah, sit in for this roller coaster ride. Next change we're going to have is under unit types. Just a small clarification here under individual models. Stating that models represent the overall health of a unit, so they're usually removed when the unit suffers damage. Usually one model represents one wound. Some abilities and special rules, however, might modify this. The entire point of this section here is just to reference the wound section that comes in later in the rulebook, just in dealing with the fact that removing a model from a unit is technically not always the case. Again, technical. That's going to be the word of this, uh, this entire episode. Uh, next one is actually going to be a first change that we have under ranks is that solo units are only ever uh, only ever have a single rank. This is a rules change from before where they were never considered to have ranks. This was mainly done as a um, kind of streamlining thing. Uh, it does have a couple interactions with some cards and effects throughout the game, but they're very overall minor as far as the overall level of just interaction that happens there. Again, this was mainly done as more of a just like kind of streamlining effort here rather than uh, hitting any type of like interaction specifically. Next coming down, we have under unit uh, melee and ranged attack abilities. Further rewording and clarification that a unit's maximum range is not an ability and cannot be canceled or removed. So under the last wording, we had people that were reading this as that sentence that was specifically talking about maximum range was applying to the entirety of melee and ranged attacks. So you had people reading it as like, oh, melee and ranged attacks can never be removed, when that sentence was specifically to be dealing with the uh, maximum range for a ranged attack in there. So minor rewarding there, just to have clarification, and just for anyone who is still asking about that, innate abilities are the only thing that cannot be removed because the range listed under ranged attacks is not an ability. All right, further moving on, further moving on. Abilities. This is something we talked about in one of the 1.5 update articles that um, abilities from attachments are added to the unit, considered to be sourced from the unit for all purposes. And if a unit ever loses its abilities, it, that includes the attachments as well. This is a... Uh, a rules change that really just you can cover in the article that's going to be explained this better than me just going into that again but the short end of it was just this does buff a lot of effects that remove abilities but this is also is just more of a streamlining effort that was done because one of the main things that came up was like okay well what is removed what isn't removed you know do attachments count well yes unless they're specifically say otherwise I'm sorry, before they didn't count unless it specifically said otherwise. So an ability would have to say it removed attachments. Okay, well, what about things that are granted by tactics cards and all of that? This entire system has just been kind of streamlined where when a unit loses abilities, it's going to lose everything printed on its card and any attachments. It doesn't affect NCUs, doesn't affect things that gains from tactics cards uh, in any capacity or from any outside sources, unless it specifically says otherwise, because you do have some effects that do remove, for example, effects of just attachments. You don't have anything in the game, though, that does remove anything from like tactics cards or whatnot. You have some effects that prevent them from being targeted by tactics cards, but that's not going to do anything for things that have like already affected them or so forth. Um, Again, technical interactions there, but you're just going to have to um, know what each effect does. But specifically here, it's if I blank a unit's abilities and I cancel those abilities, it's going to lose whatever's printed on the card and then whatever attachments are 
on the unit. Basically, they're treated as one and the same for all purposes, unless something says otherwise. That's one of the ones that got its own article, and because it's fairly large to talk about, that's one of the ones that, you know, really, if you're confused by that, go read the article. It's going to explain that better than the rambling I just did. Moving on further, jumping ahead, we have under ranged attacks. Uh, we did make some sh uh, changes to the way shifting works. Um, the new rule here states, when a unit performs a ranged attack, it may first shift up to two inches. So long as at the end of that shift, a viable target is still within its maximum range and line of sight. This was one of those changes that I'm going to really place under quality of life just because, yes, okay, it was a neat little tactic that you could take the combat zone and then shift and, you know, not have a target for your range attack and get that extra two inches. That was neat, but frankly, the amount of just kind of, um, huh, or, you know, illogical moments that created with players where even though, yes, this is something that's technically allowed by the rules and wasn't really a problem, it still confused people. And again, this was just a change made for streamlining things. So that is technically a small nerf, I suppose, to ranged guys that they can no longer just shift for the hell of it in all of the very rare cases you would actually ever want to do that. But... This is, again, just an effort for streamlining. So basically, if you are going to shift, you still have to maintain a valid target at the end of said shift. Moving on, we are getting down to the charge section. And so this was funny enough here. This was a victim of people getting, um, I don't want to say incomplete information, but drawing conclusions based on not having the whole picture. And this is actually, there's another section that we'll get into this as well, that um, it's just one of those things, you know, we put up an article discussing some changes and then there's some extrapolation that happens from people reading said article and not having the whole picture, which, you know, I'll say, okay, that's a little bit on our fault for, you know, how we present information, but it's also one of those things that you just kind of don't really prepare for where, you know, it's like, hey, here's two features we're going to talk about. This is part of upcoming changes. And then people go, oh, that's the 100% of the information, so let me base everything off of that. I can see why people do that. I don't personally um, advise that, but you know, I can, I can see why it happens. But let's go into this right here. So we have three changes to the charging section. Uh, the first one is one of the requirements for charging, and that is the line of sight arc, see below, of the target unit must have enough space for the attacker's tray to align to at least 50% contact with the target's tray without being obstructed by another unit slash terrain. Effectively, what that means is that you have to have 50% visibility on the line of sight arc that you intend to charge, meaning that you can no longer do those little 10%, you know, uh, corner charges or whatnot and pull a unit out of formation or anything. Actually, you can't pull them at all, but anyway... The point of this change, like we went over in the article, was basically to make unit positioning matter more because, frankly, before it was really easy to charge a target if you wanted to, and there was almost nothing that an opponent could really do to stop you if you were dedicated to doing so, um, including putting units to the side, you know, basically making like vanguard formations or anything like that. The formation kind of positioning was lost, and you know that's just one of the elements that I really like seeing in the game. This fosters that more. Now. This is the part that was not showcased and I think would have actually probably nipped a lot of uh, initial problems that people were having um, had, you know, they had, we had shown this or had they read this. This was one of those things that's like, well, you don't really think a need to show and then it kind of snowballs into a big thing. But 
you know, the updates were coming in less than a week, so it really wasn't worth addressing at the time. Um, the next change here is down under actually align with enemy. On a successful charge, the attacker's tray is then aligned to the target enemy's tray. Place the attacker so that it is aligned to either 50% or 100% to the defender's tray. And that's pretty much what the article covered. And then people, you know, given the information they had, they went, oh, so to, in order to charge, I have to align to 100% or 50%. If I can't do anything else, then I can't charge, which is not the case, because then we have the next two sentences here. If the attacker cannot be aligned directly at 50% or 100%, their tray must be aligned as close to one of these two as possible. Remembering that for a charge to be valid, the attacker must be able to align to at least 50%. Okay, so this is where we're going to get technical here, because there are some situations where you could basically, to declare a valid charge, you would have to have at least 50% facing on the uh, line of sight that you are charging, front, flank, rear, whatever. You then have to hit and align to 50% or 100% if those options exist. If one of those options is not available, then you will align into that 51 to 99% area. That's the bit of information that people were not presented with. And again, I see where the, where the confusion was coming from on people, because basically it would make this whole like dead zone where like, say I could align to uh, say 75%, but I couldn't do 50 or hundred. Then people were coming to the conclusion, which again, given the information they had is not unreasonable. Um, that like, oh, that means I can't charge. But again, not the case here. If you can fit in that window, you can line up however you however you can to get in there. You just have to align 50% or 100% if you can. Failing that, you have to go as close to one of those two as you can. Now, this is very important when tied back to the initial rules for declaring a charge. Because one of the big changes here for 1.5 was that the defender's tray is never moved under any circumstances. That was basically just kind of cleaning things up. Um, an effort to do that, but it's important to remember that to declare a valid charge, one of the base criterias is you have to have been able to have met at least 50%. So that's something to never overlook because that's removing the whole issue that was initially there was these 10%, 30% charges and creating the positioning thing in there. What this does though, is that if I'm aligned, let's say I'm forced to go at most 75% because there's a piece of blocking terrain in the way or something like that, or, you know, um, there's a friendly tray keeping me from positioning there, whatever it comes up, okay? I also want to kind of stress that not being able to line 50 to 100%, it's still considered a corner case. I'm not going to say that's the most extreme corner case, but more often than not, it's not going to come up. But the point is, and this is a general thing for some people to remember, because I think this will do you well, is that if I have to align, say, 75%, that's almost mechanically no different than being 100% aligned because it also makes me immune to getting countercharged because less than 50% of my facing would then be available to actually contact. So effectively what this does is that it you know, cleans up the whole like, okay, we're going to shift trays over, we're going to slide things around. You know, units are going to be either locked with one or two units at most on, a, uh, on, the, same, uh, on the same arc which was one of the initial things, which actually ties into the next thing here of engaging multiple enemies. In some cases, after making a successful charge, the attacker might end up in contact with other enemies beside the target of the charge. In this case, these enemies will be aligned so that they're engaging the attacker at 50%, moving the least possible distance. If they cannot be aligned 50%, they're instead moved by their owner to one uh, up 
to one inch away from the attacker. If a situation arises where one inch cannot be done, any and all trays should be moved the least possible distance uh, to avoid being engaged. Basically, if you contact multiple guys, you're going to, you know, everyone's going to, you know, get forced together into the same combat if it lines up like that. If it doesn't, then you're going to move the trays the least possible distance to avoid the guys being engaged. It's again a very, you know, yes, no, check, uh, check, not check binary uh, state. So, you know, this is to avoid those weird situations that, and this is corner case, um, in 1.4 where you would have guys that like, oh, if I, if I were perfectly aligned in this geometrical formation here, then I could potentially end up here in contact and it creates this weird, am I engaged, am I not? So just again, more clarification, more cleaning up of things here. Not really clarification. All right, again, not going to dwell too much on that. We have an entire article around it. I could talk the about just that little section of the changes here for a long time. Moving on, though, we are going to go under resolving attacks. This is going to seem a lot more impactful to people than it probably is. But we've added three sections under resolving attacks. Uh, one section specifically noting there's a step to apply uh, attack dice rerolls. If either player has effects that would cause attack dice to be rerolled, they're applied now. Once the final result has been generated, any effects that trigger after attack dice are rolled may be used. This is basically clarifying the way uh, a lot of people, well, pretty much the majority people played anyway. This is just adding a specific step showing that this is exactly this moment when that happens for if that ever comes up it's one of those things that's just kind of innate nature that most 99 percent of the people out there are never going to actually go like oh wait when does this happen but now it's specifically covered and the same situation applies for applied defense dice rerolls basically a specific step there that says the exact same thing i just said except we're going over defense dice uh, at the very end we now have a section for attack completed which is once these steps have been performed, the attack will be completed. At this point, any abilities slash effects that trigger after a unit is attacked can be played. Once this is done, in the case of a melee attack, the attacker may also be able to surge forth, which then references the surge forth callout box, which is listed below this. This is essentially just adding, again, not really a step to the attack, because it is this would technically go, hey, the attack's done. Now that the attack is done, you trigger anything that happens after the unit is attacked, after the attack has been completed, so forth and so forth. Because you did have um, people that would read, okay, well, what is technically the attack? Even though, you know, I'm just going to say this, the there is very specific things that are defined to the attack. But then you had people that are like, oh, was well, the panic te uh, test part of the attack? Uh, yes. Uh, you know, just questions like that. This is adding just a very specific methodical step here that goes, hey, this is when those things trigger. Again, this is a quality of life change here more than anything else. Surge forth. We Again, this one was talked about in the article. I'm not going to go over this too much. But this was actually a mechanical change here that states that surge forth is essentially the last thing that happens after everything else has been resolved. Because when you get into the technicals of the rules, anything that would have triggered uh, when the after the unit was attacked or technically as well when the unit was destroyed and surged forth would all kind of lump together. So I think the most infamous example of that would be um, counter charge and surge forth because those would both share the same trigger. Then you'd have a simultaneous actions event where the active player would revolve, resolve their surge forth and then counter charge would trigger, which, you know, or 
that kind of creates a little weird situation where it's like, oh, you both have declared uses of cards. So therefore, oh, I know you have counter charge. Therefore, I can surge forth and get out of the way of that. And this removes that. Basically, surge forth is the dead last thing that is going to happen. So indirect buff to those cards. But that really just means that they are playing how they should intuitively be playing um, versus the rules getting in the way of those. <laughs> That's a weird thing to say, but sometimes it happens. Next thing we're going to have is under combat bonuses. This is just some further clarification under charge bonus and what exactly that constitutes. Since the charge bonus is a very specific term, proper term, and rule in the game. So you'd have, and this is not really going to help this because you're still going to have people that are going to ask like, well, does a lance, you know, is that a charge bonus? No. The charge bonus is again a very, very specific thing in the game. That is the rerolls that you get for charging. And then you had people that go like, well, if it says charge bonuses, so why is it plural? And that's just a case of, okay, we'll say bad grammar there. So that was fixed and just to clean that up. Um, but no mechanical changes there. Panic test. Oh yeah, tons of mechanical changes there. I'm not even going to touch that one. Just you guys know it. That was the single biggest point of debate here. I'm not going to get into that. We have a whole article about that and you know, chat about that as you will. Next up, we have under non-combat unit actions. Um, we have added a clause here. I actually replaced one. Uh, alternatively, a non-combat unit may choose to forego performing any action at all during its activation, though this is seldom beneficial. This was done to just make them fully in line with combat units who also have the ability to activate and then perform no action. This is combat units here can also choose to activate, sorry, non-combat units can also choose to activate and forego action. Uh, currently, this has all of one interaction in the entire game, but it is still an option that you can uh, do. So just noting, this was done, again, not for specific card interactions, uh, which, again, Wildling Diplomacy for Mance Raider is the one that comes to mind. This wasn't done for anything about like power level for that. This was done merely just as a streamlining thing to make the options synonymous between combat units and non-combat units. Influence callout box got a... Uh, additional notice here. If an effect ever causes a combat unit to lose all abilities, note that this does not include influence abilities unless specifically mentioned. This is just again reinforcing the thing back from abilities earlier that if a unit gets its abilities blanked, that's units' uh, abilities printed on the card and their attachments does not affect influence tactics cards or whatever else might be giving them some cool stuff unless it specifically says, hey, you don't get that cool stuff. Uh, Ygritte would be a, um example here where her ability specifically cancels influence effects. So obviously that would work. Just an example there. Next up, we have under tactics cards, we have just a clarified example of trigger timings. This is something that I think that a lot of people get caught up on specific wording, where triggers are based off of game state events. They're not based on specific wording of the tactics cards. And the rulebook does say that, but then you have you know people that will read it a certain way or not read it at all or you know come to separate conclusions whatever way the whole point of this is that it doesn't matter the reason why it's just clarifying to get people all on the same page because you would have for example people that would go um when a unit is attacked with uh is attacked and when a unit is attacked with melee are those the same trigger because they're worded differently they are absolutely, because this, the trigger for that is specifically a unit is being attacked. The fact that is one of those has an extra caveat that is being attacked with melee does not make that a separate trigger. The trigger for that is still the game state event the unit is being attacked. It's just adding an extra limiter or quant, uh, quantifier on that card 
Like, for example, if you had one that said, when a unit is attacked by an enemy with more remaining ranks, the trigger for that is still initially them being attacked. It's just adding additional you know, qualifiers and criteria to actually be able to play the card. But that was something that, you know, um, did confuse some people. So further clarification here and just adding an example to it. No mechanical change. Simultaneous actions. This section got a small cleanup in the form of additional bullet points. Um, once both players have declared any effects they wish to trigger, those effects would then be resolved, beginning with the player whose turn it is resolving their effects first, followed by their opponent. This was another case where, by the old wording, um, it could be read that the effects were played and resolved at the same time. And what I mean by that is um, player one de would declare a card, player two declares card, players one actually resolves immediately before player two's. Uh, see, this is even hard to explain to even make sense. Basically, people were tying the declaration and resolution of the effect uh, immediately and simultaneously, which is never a case, okay? Nothing ever, ever in this game, period, ever, under any circumstances, just happens, okay? There's always a chance for the opponent to respond. There's always a chance for them to do something. Now, whether what you did um, is going to cancel that out by some method or some means, that's a different story. But there's nothing that's like, I slap a card down, bam, it immediately happens. Okay? Does not exist. Period. Okay? And a lot of people are going to like to cite um, Winter is Coming and Counterplot in this example, but that's actually not even the thing that's happening here. But it is a good example of someone slapping down a card like Winter is Coming and trying to say, oh, this effect happens immediately and therefore you can't play Counterplot, which is not the case. The card has to resolve before anything happens, and Counterplot specifically keeps the card from resolving. So, again, this is not a you know fastest gun in the West game where it's like I slap a card down and boom, that just happens. There's always a chance to respond. In that specific interaction, it just happens that the thing that's being responded with cancels out the effect. And again, the card has to be able to resolve before it actually takes effect. So if it's being canceled, can't resolve, can't prevent other cards from going. All right, moving on, we have rerolls. <laughs> I laugh because one of these changes here is kind of asinine. Um, so... Through a lot of talking about these changes, you'll see that most of them are done for clarification and the attempt to basically remove any ambiguity from how people can read things, which is almost impossible from, you know, in English or just in general uh, grammatical standpoint, period. We can always try to make things better, but nothing's ever going to be perfect. This is one of those kind of ones, though, that kind of triggered me. Like, every other change here, I get it, okay? I can see, like, oh, okay, you can read it like this. I understand the conclusions you're coming to. Let's try to make this better. You know, I understand that. No wording's ever perfect. This one here, though, is where we're drawing the line. Because this change here was a die may ever be uh, forced to be ruled once by each player. Effectively, that's the only change that happened there. But the reason that had to change, didn't have to, but the wording on there was because you would have people that would argue the physical person rolling the die matters. For example, uh, I charge in. Okay, I'm going to re-roll my charge die. My opponent has a weaken token. Weaken, by its very strictest wording, says that you can force the opponent to re-roll any attack dice. Okay, well, you can't do that because I already physically rolled these dice once. 
and therefore I cannot physically roll them again because it says a die may only be re-rolled once by each player uh, under the old rules. Therefore, because I'm physically rolling the dice in both cases, your effect can't happen. If you ever play against someone that tries to enforce that, where their, their technical argument is the physical player rolling the die, please find a better opponent. Like, please. I can, again, I can see where a lot of people come into, you know, oh, this is how you're reading this. You know, okay, I, it's a stretch for me, but I can at least see where you're coming from. You know, in this specific instance, come on, man. That, that this is almost like mind boggling to me that there exists actually people out there that would, their entire basis for this argument would be the physical person rolling the die matters in the rules. That's just, that's almost crazy to me. But anyway, because that, uh, people like that exist, apparently, uh, this change was done there. <laughs> uh, I have very strong opinions on that one. Uh, next one is ability stacking and loss of abilities. This section was just overhauled to match everything that we previously spoke about before, about, you know, when a unit loses abilities, what specifically is lost, what is kept, and all that. I think I mentioned that like four times now as we've been chatting through this, so I'm not going to even bother going through that anymore. Let's see, I think that actually might have been everything. The only other change in the rulebook here was... Well, actually in the rulebook, so first off, the uh, online one now features all the expanded game modes. So they're incorporated right into the book, which is nice. There was one minor change here that happened to Winds of Winter, which is players must achieve plus two victory points to win this game mode, in addition to the number based on game size. This is to match it up with Dance of Dragons, and... um. Well, that's the only thing to really mention there. Let's hop into the general errata slash FAQ and go over some of the questions that were added there. First off, the rulebook errata section was entirely redone because, again, rulebook was changed. So even though everything there was done, everything is not highlighted in pink because literally it would be every single item. But we do have some new general FAQ questions that were added in here and a couple to the game modes FAQ. We'll go over those. I mean, they're pretty self-explanatory, but let's just go over them and we can just do a little chat about those. So the first one that was added. Question. Some attachments have the text, this model is always the last model destroyed from this unit. Does this mean they cannot be destroyed by abilities slash effects that specify destroy attachments? Answer. No. This text is a reminder of the general rules for attachments. Abilities slash effects that would specifically target and or destroy attachments may still affect these models. This is kind of a holdover where the text that says this is always the last model removed from this unit that technically should have been italicized in the on the card as reminder text um, because that's exactly what it is. Because it's a general attachment rule that attachments are always the last model removed. And this was a case that came up a basically, um, I'm going to say like kind of grandfathered and legacied things in where in the initial units we were a big fan of throwing down just like reminder text and constantly like, you know, cross-referencing things just to go like, hey, you know, this is how that works because, you know, we're going to just show it here versus just assuming that you know the rules. Um, and that can, this is one of those cases where it's like by doing so, it created the understandable situation where people go like, well, this says it's the last model removed. Um, how is it being destroyed before that situation? when literally that rule existing is also the same one as general attachments, which would mean technically um, none of those 
assassination style effects should theoretically ever work, except for the case that, you know, cards are going to supersede core rules by their very nature. But this is also something to point out that is very important. It's still important that you read the criteria for destroying each of those models, because some of their negative effects for being destroyed trigger when the unit is destroyed, and some of them trigger when the model is destroyed. That is very specific wording. Joffrey, for example, triggers when the model is destroyed. So if you assassinate him out of a unit, all that nasty stuff is going to trigger. Conversely, ones like Rick and Stark state that when his unit is destroyed, then that effect is going to trigger. Which means that if you assassinate him out of a unit, you're actually just doing yourself a negative because now you've removed the ability to actually destroy the unit that he's in. His effect being valuable captive. You know, you're supposed to capture him and whatnot versus, you know, just killing the hell out of him and congrats, he killed a kid. That That's not really the point there, man. Versus Joffrey, you know, oh yeah, kill him all day long. All right, next question. If an attachment has an ability that triggers when the unit is destroyed, what happens if that... Okay, it's exactly what I just explained. Cool. Uh, next one. If my opponent has an attachment that is added to my unit, such as Jacqueline Hagar, unnamed, and that unit already contains an attachment, how is the order determined? Uh, answer. The unit's owner determines the order in which they are placed within the unit. This is actually also clarified in the rulebook when attachments are added in there, that the owner always determines the order. This is, again, just further pointing back to that. Um, Follow-up question. So this means that the unit is dealt enough wounds to remove the attachment, but not destroy the unit, the attachment is removed and thus its ability lost. Answer, yes. And that is exactly what I just talked about. And it is one of those, like, you know, corner case things that can happen, where it's like, say you have Jakeen Hagar in a unit, and that unit is dealt exactly 11 wounds, which would be enough to re remove up to Jacken, but not destroy the unit. Yeah, that's going to be lost. And unfortunately, that sucks. If that's something you can plan for, then good tactical use on you. Otherwise, it's just kind of one of those like, well, crap, that happened. And, you know, those situations do come up. Uh, next question. Can, a un can I target units that are not on the battlefield, such as combat units in reserve, with ability slash effects? The answer to that is a straight no. Uh, that conversely also goes to NCUs, like say someone for whatever reason was trying to, I guess, panic an NCU. Um, no. This really is, again, one of those things just for as more things that do like reserve deployment, or if you're playing Clash of Kings or anything like that, those things are going to come up. Um, this is just clarifying that. If it's on the board, can't target it. That's the last of the FAQ questions. We have one game modes question. Um, in a Clash of Kings, if an ability slash effect would remove any attachment from a unit, such as Take the Black or Chicken Hagara named, what happens when the unit is redeployed? Answer for that is the unit would redeploy with their attachment, effectively creating a second copy of that attachment on the battlefield. So this is one of those kind of weird areas that can kind of get into some uh, debates for people. Like, if I take the Black, I'm taking them all out of the unit, I'm putting it in my unit. Um... What happens when now we need two copies of that? And like, there can be situations arise where, you know, yeah, you're going to need, you know, two copies of an attachment technically to continue the game state. But that's just how that works. You know, you're not limited by, you know, model availability. You're just going to have to, in that case, note or have an extra one that says, like, hey, Great John Umber got taken the black. And then this other unit of Great John Umber that may or may not be a clone or small John or whatever space time disruption dragons, white walker magic, whatever you want to call it. Point is, is that, you know, don't confuse the the way rules interactions happen with physical model placement. 
I know that's a tricky topic to kind of get into, but anyway, that's the way that works there. So all in all, that is going to cover the changes to the core rules, the specific, you know, uh, anointments in the general errata FAQ and the rulebook. Uh, I am not going to today get into any of the unit updates at all or any of the FAQ questions for the individual factions because frankly those are all fairly self-explanatory and in the case of the unit um, updates well we already have the one thing that we are doing just like we previously did before is that we are going to have the design notes uh, in the FAQs directly they're going to go over specifically why these changes were done and explain them so really it would just be me uh, be me verbatim repeating those and I don't really see a point in that uh, more so, you know, you can't get all the spoilers the day before. I will most likely end up doing some podcasts going over each of the individual factions, their changes, and how they affect the overall. But those are topics for other days that require way more in-depth talk than anything we're going to get into here. So that's going to it. That's going to be it to cover everything here. If you are listening to this on Sunday the 8th, then consider this your early uh, 1.5 holiday gift to go over these uh, changes and talks right here. And you can download all those files tomorrow. And if you're seeing this after the fact, then this was probably really superfluous for you to listen to, unless you just wanted, you know, a narrated, you know, kind of talk of going through all these changes. So if that's something you enjoyed, then hey, great on you too. All right. So hopefully that'll be it. Join us next time, and we will have some exciting, more exciting stuff to even talk about then. Take care, guys.